The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this privilege that we have to gather together as believers to study your word. What a true privilege it is that we often take for granted that we have your word and we have had it available available to us all of our lives. And many of us have been in church all of our lives, and yet we just take this for granted, not realizing what a fantastic privilege it is and that it is the truth of your word and the impact of your word that is the real foundation for the freedoms that we have in this country. Father, thank you for people like Jim who are over in Ukraine and other parts of the world who are uh, sacrificing many of the things they could have here in the States in order to take the gospel to these people and to teach them doctrine. We continue to pray for his church and for his ministry, for their financial needs, for the need for a permanent building, and for the outreach that they have to orphanages and hospitals and into so many uh, smaller towns and rural villages around uh, Kiev. We just pray that you would continue to strengthen his health and make this time that they have this summer when they come back here a time of refreshment. Now, Father, as we get into your word, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we study, that we could be challenged by them and we could understand them and see how they relate to our spiritual life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'll open your Bibles with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Well, we'll go back and briefly review verse 18 just to get the context. 1 John chapter 2, start with verse 18. Children, little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming even now. Many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Now, I have said again and again that we have to pay attention to certain terminology in this letter because it indicates when he is changing subject. He has the phrase, little children here, which is different from the phrase, little children, down in verse 28. This little children is addressed to the immature believers in the congregation. We talked about the fathers, the mature believers. We talked about the young men, which references the adolescent believers. And then the little children here, Pideon, references the um, young, immature believers. So what he emphasizes in the next uh, nine verses, down through verse uh, 27 is what we have in the foundation of the spiritual life. And he's going to bring in the the concept of anointing. Now, anointing relates to the Holy Spirit, and we're going to get into the doctrine of anointing both this week and next week. But this is 
This is a foundational doctrine. We've talked about the basic problem-solving devices. We've talked about um, confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrine orientation. Those are the foundational spiritual skills. And what he focuses on in this section from 18 down through 27 are those foundational skills as they relate specifically to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we have, that's the unique ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So we need to uh, begin this section. We probably won't get down to but maybe verse 20 this morning in an overview of the doctrine of anointing, but we might as well uh, begin when John gets into this, he's emphasizing the basis for fellowship. He's going to say in verse 19 that there were those who went out that went out from us, but they were not of us. In other words, there is a break in fellowship with these false teachers. And there are three principles we have to remember from our previous study of 1 John, especially in the first four verses. First of all, John is going to emphasize that fellowship, real fellowship with God, is based first but not exclusively on doctrinal truth. The problem with the break in fellowship here isn't because of behavior. It isn't because they've become immoral. It isn't because they've gotten involved in some sort of sin. It's because they've adopted a false view of the person of Jesus Christ. These were people who taught that Christ really had not come in the flesh. They were an early stage in the development of what was called Gnosticism, or another manifestation of it was called Docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Docetism, from the Greek word dokeo, D-O-K-E-O, which means to appear. They thought that Christ could not have actually had a physical body, because if he had a physical body, he would have been tied to something that was, that was material, and by definition for them, material is inherently evil. See, out of Platonism and Neoplatonism, these ideas, the uh, dualistic ideas that dominated the early church uh, or the culture at that time, there were I- ideas that matter was inherently evil and spirit was good. And so how could uh, a spirit being become linked to something that was material and remain uh, sinless or perfect. And so there's this this disjunction that occurs between the physical and the spiritual. And, you know, another place where we see that today, and I hear this every now and then, I'll, I'll be channel surfing and I'll see some preacher or hear some preacher on, and they'll say, well, that was in the natural, but now we're in the spirit. You know, and they're wanting to make a distinction between the physical and the spiritual. But they use this terminology and they rip it out of 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14. And some of you have heard people use that terminology. And that buys into this same, to a subtle dualism, just like what we're talking about here, that somehow the physical and the material isn't as significant or as important as the spiritual. And yet when God created us, when God created Adam and he formed his body a specific way. Now think about this. When God created Adam's body, his physical body, as a bipedal hominoid that would look a certain way with two legs and two arms and a face and two eyes and ears and a nose, I'm not saying that that's what God looks like, that God has a physical body like that. But God in his omniscience knew 
And let's, let's really anthropomorphize this a little bit. Billions and billions of years ago, God's scratching his head and he's saying, Okay, I know I'm going to create this creature and I'm going to have to become this creature in a, in a, in a billion years. Now, what am I going to make this body like so that once I make it, when I incarnate myself into that body, I can, I can give the highest and best and greatest manifestation and revelation of who I am. See, God didn't just randomly create a body like this for Adam because it, it, it just seemed like it was, it was better than anybody else's body or any other body for any other creature he made. He created a body to look a certain way and to have certain features because it was in that specific body that God would reveal himself to man. So he wanted to give man a body that if God in all of his infiniteness and all with all of his attributes, that if God were going to scrunch himself down into a finite representation of who he was, he would do it in this kind of a body. That's why it says that God created Adam in the image and likeness of God, so that it is a, it's a creaturely representation. It is a finite representation, because eventually man is going to see the image of God manifested in that, in the person of Jesus Christ. So the physical body is not some just a house that the soul's in. Remember, Jesus' physical body is what was glorified through the resurrection. And it is that physical human body that he will continue to possess throughout all of eternity in the future. So this shows that in the Bible, matter and the material body of the human being is not something that is merely secondary. It's not something that's just a house for the soul, but it is something that is important and uh, relates, to, relates to the soul because it is only through the body that the soul can express itself. So there, the, the Bible puts this strong emphasis on the value of the body and the value of the material body, and this is why Jesus Christ came, part of why he came in the flesh, and there is that emphasis. So when they denied the physical humanity of Jesus Christ, it affects a number of doctrines, not the least of which is doctrines related to the spiritual life, because it was in physical humanity that Jesus Christ also struggled with every category of testing and temptation and was a victor in that because of his reliance upon God the Holy Spirit. And it is in that that he set the precedence for the spiritual life of the church age. So an attack on the humanity of Jesus Christ and the real humanity of Jesus Christ is an assault on, the, uh, on humanity in itself. It is an assault on uh, Jesus Christ's incarnation. And it is an assault on the spiritual life for the church age. All of this is involved in that. So if you don't have your doctrine right Christologically, you can't have fellowship with the apostles and you can't have fellowship with God. And so John is making a point that fellowship is based on right doctrine. So let's look at three principles. First of all, right doctrine alone, though, doesn't mean you're in fellowship. Right doctrine alone doesn't mean you're in fellowship. Just because you can affirm a correct doctrinal statement and you understand basic doctrine of the person and work of Jesus Christ and salvation doesn't mean in and of itself that you are in fellowship. So we want to make sure we understand that. Right doctrine alone doesn't mean you're in fellowship. Second principle, right behavior alone doesn't mean you're in fellowship. Fellowship isn't based on morality. 
Fellowship with God isn't based on doing the right thing. So it's not just right behavior and it's not just correct doctrine. Third principle, both correct behavior and right doctrine are necessary to maintain fellowship with God. Right behavior and right doctrine are both necessary to maintain fellowship with God. Now, when I say right doctrine, I don't mean that you have, you have to have every jot and tittle in a systematic theology understood. We're talking about basic doctrines here related to an understanding of the Trinity, that God exists in three persons and one essence. Basic understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ in hypostatic union, that he is undiminished deity united with true humanity in one person, that he was sinless and impeccable. Basic understanding of the gospel, that Jesus Christ went to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Basic understanding of the Trinity, salvation, person and work of Jesus Christ. I don't think that this applies to every detail in understanding revelation or prophecy or other doctrines of that nature. But the foundational doctrines related to uh, theology proper, the person of God, the essence of God, and the person and work of Jesus Christ and salvation. Now what had happened was that the Antichrists that he mentions in verse 18 are those who had rejected the truth about Jesus' true humanity back in the, and those are mentioned in the first four verses of 1 John 1. There, let's review a minute, there we read, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And again and again and again I emphasize that the first person plural there, the we, indicates first and foremost the apostolic community of which John was a part. Because he's talking about what they witnessed, what they actually handled. They saw the physical body of Christ. They saw him eat. They saw him drink. They were involved with him physically. Then verse 2 there's, a, there's an appositional verse, or appositional clause there. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. In other words, if you don't agree with us in our doctrine of the personal work of Jesus Christ, you can't have fellowship with the apostles. If you can't have fellowship with the apostles, you can't have fellowship with God or with one another. That's his basic argument in those initial verses. Now, throughout history, there have been many antichrists who have come out of the church who have distorted the doctrines related to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Some are more extreme, some are less extreme. You can go back into early stages of church history in the in the 4th century where you had Arius, who was one of the first ones to teach that there was a time when Christ was not that Jesus Christ was a creature, even though he was begotten at some point in eternity past, there still was a time when Christ was not. And that gave rise to the uh, first great church council of Nicaea, where they, clear, for, for the first time in church history, clearly articulated the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Later on in the Middle Ages, there was Abelard, who taught that the nature of the atonement was not that it was substitutionary, but that it was an example. Jesus died as an example for us of how to be committed to God and to be committed to our love for God. And so that 
heresy of what was called an exemplary or moral view of the atonement. Later it had some different uh, twists, came into church history. In fact, in, in more modern times, that was the view of what some people call a great evangelist in the 19th century America, a man by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. Finney was from New York. He was the founder of Oberlin College. But Finney taught a uh, governmental or moral view of the atonement. They're, they're a little different, but they're very similar. He did not believe in a substitutionary view of the atonement. And yet, he is usually listed as one of the great evangelists in American church history. How can he be a great evangelist if he doesn't understand the nature of the atonement? These are false teachers. That, as John says, they have gone out from us, but they were not of us. Then you have more extreme examples like we taught, and when I covered that verse, uh, that, that Islam completely rejects Jesus as, as deity and teaches that he was simply a prophet. You come along with more modern cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons and many, many others who deny the full deity and true humanity of Jesus Christ. So this is the trend throughout church history that there are many antichrists that will come up and this is an indication of the last hour which is the church age. The message of the gospel is what is at issue here because if Jesus is not fully God and fully man then he does not fulfill what John says is the essence of his messiahship and that is the crucial point in the gospel according to um, According to John, the saving, the, the saving proposition in John 20, 30, and 31 is that these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, and that by believing you might have life in his name. This is the same thing that John emphasizes to um, Martha when he arrives after Lazarus has died. Jesus said to her, and John 11:25, I am the resurrection to life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who, believe, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, he, when he says, do you believe this, he's recognizing, first of all, that she's smart enough and cognizant enough to know what she believes and what she doesn't believe. Now, you see, the reason I make that point is because most people in the lordship crowd don't think that you're smart enough to know what you believe and what you don't believe. See, they think you, you won't really know whether you're saved until you die because you can't know because you might have a false faith. You might be believing the wrong thing. Well, Jesus recognizes with Martha that you're smart enough to know what you believe and what you don't believe. And he says to her, do you believe this? And she responds by saying, yes, Lord, I have believed... That is in the past, pluperfect, I mean a perfect tense, that she has believed in the past. I have believed that you are the Messiah, that is the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. This is the essence of what John sees as the gospel, believing that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the God-man who has come into the world. He is, he is the one who has become flesh and dwelt among us. So for anyone to deny Jesus as the Messiah is to undercut the very content, the core content of the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah who has come into the world and in order to die on the cross to save us. Now, in verse 19, John goes on to characterize the origin of these antichrists. He says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. Now, part of that is not in the Greek, but it has to be repeated in order for it to really come through and make sense in the English. You see the uh, clause there, um, they would have remained with us, semicolon, but they went out. That clause is not repeated in the original Greek, but it's usually added in most English translations in order that the verse make a little more sense to us when we read it. And I think it would make even more sense if they had said, but they went out from us. If they're going to repeat part of the previous phrase, they ought to repeat the whole phrase. Now, this is a fascinating verse in the Greek because there's several little difficulties in here and several uh, word plays which John is um, very fond of and he uses in order to make his point. Now, what you need to pay attention to here is the use of the pronoun, they and us. And then if you look at verse 20 you will notice that he adds the second person plural pronoun, but you have an anointing. So we, to get the thrust of this verse, we have to pay attention to the pronouns. Who are the they? Who are the us or the we? And who is you? So first of all, we have to note the contrast between the they and the us and the you in these verses. Now let's talk first of all about the us. There are two ways that we could understand the us or the we in these verses, the first person plural. This could refer to we Christians or us Christians. Second way we could understand it is we apostles or us apostles. Now, which is it? Now, the way a lot of people read this is they think think in terms of something general, well, we, that would include us. But no, it doesn't. We have to be consistent with the author's use of this first-person plural pronoun all the way through. Starting at the very beginning, he did not include his audience in the we or the us. He is talking primarily. It's only in a secondary or tertiary way that we're brought in by application. But in a primary sense, he is only talking about we the apostles. So he says, they went out from us. So the us there is not talking about us in general. They didn't just generally have some loose association with Christians or churches somewhere in Asia Minor or in Greece and uh, go out from them. They went out specifically from the apostolic body. This suggests that these false teachers had some kind of historical root back in Jerusalem, that they had been involved in the early stages of Christianity and the church back in Jerusalem. They were probably believers. Now, almost everybody you read on this, because they get into that the subtle problems of lordship salvation, want to say that they weren't really believers because if they were really believers, then they wouldn't get involved in false teaching and false doctrine. Well, that doesn't follow. Believers can get involved in any sin and any kind of false doctrine imaginable, and they have. And you're not living in the realm of reality if you think they don't. And the problem is with, with many people who get into this, is they have a very low view of sin. Now, they may talk a lot about sin, but they don't understand how dreadful sin is, how how arrogant we are, how, how many mental attitude sins float through so many of our motivations and the things that we do. Sins of jealousy, sins of envy, sins of bitterness and anger. And uh, 
Uh, they just want to focus on a few select sins and not the many sins. They have a very shallow view of the impact of sin. And Christians are capable, because they still have a fully active sin nature, they're capable of committing any possible sin and getting involved in any possible distortion of doctrine, even to the point where they may eventually deny the Lord. And this is where um, it's important to understand the passage over in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Hold your place here, and let's turn back briefly to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. Excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, where we read, This is a faithful saying, For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. And that applies to every single believer who positionally dies with the Lord Jesus Christ at the instant of salvation. We are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And then the second clause of this little poem, which is the first part of verse 12, 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. And that is talking about advancing believers who are steadfast and endure in the process of spiritual growth, continue to spiritual maturity, then they shall be rewarded and reign with Him in the kingdom. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Now before I explain that, look at the next clause. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, I want you to notice that those seem to contradict each other. And the, the, the last clause of verse 12 is talking about us denying him. And the, la- and the first part of verse 13 says that, no, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. Well, which is it? Well, we have to understand what this is talking about. Apparently, this was taken from some saying or some hymn that they sang at that time to remind them of this important doctrine. If we deny Him means that if you are a failure in the Christian life and you deny Christ and you deny His grace in your life, then at the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus Christ will deny us any rewards. And there will not be any rewards and there will be a loss of reward. And we're going to get into that as we develop our study in 1 John chapter 2. Near the end of the chapter, he talks about the fact that for many believers there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ because they have failed to advance to spiritual maturity and they have basically wasted their spiritual life by, by getting involved in everything under the sun except being in Bible class, learning doctrine, and growing. Verse 13, he says, If we are faithless, and literally in the Greek this is apistis, which means unbelieving, If we are unbelieving, He remains faithful. Even if we reject Christ, He is going to continue to be with us. In Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus, I mean, we are told Jesus has said He will never leave us or forsake us. It doesn't say He will never leave you or forsake you if you never leave Him or forsake Him. If, uh, If the scripture says He will never leave you or forsake you, that means that even when you don't want Him to have anything to do with your life, He's still there. Even when you're uh, deep in carnality, He's still there. He will never leave you or forsake you, period. It's not based on any condition. So, 
believers can get involved in any category of false doctrine, even to the point of rejecting Christ as Savior, and they will still be saved, but they will suffer a loss of reward, and there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Now let's go back to our passage in 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us. Now, this is the main verb of the sentence. It is the Greek exalthon, which is the third person plural, aorist active indicative of exerchomai. Exerchomai means to, to uh, come out or to go out from. It is erchomai, which is the word to come or to go, plus the pre- uh, prefix ex, which makes it to come or to go out. The aorist tense is a culminative aorist, which is used to stress the cessation of an act or state. So this has already happened. It's happened at some time in the past. And John says that they went out from us at some uh, undisclosed time in the, in the past, probably uh, several or many years earlier. He says they went out from us. And here he uses the preposition ek. Now, he uses it twice. He says, they went out from us, and he uses the preposition ek there. And then, in the next clause, he says, but they were not uh, from us, literally, ek, is repeated again. But it has two different uh, emphases. Ek can emphasize separation and source. So, he uses the same preposition both places as sort of a a play on words to get our attention and to cause us to think about just exactly what it is he is saying. He says, they went out from us. That is separation. They separated themselves from us. And then he says, but they were not from us. And and with the second use of ek, it indicates source. They were not from the same source as us. In other words... They were different. They did not go out from us with our blessing, with our authorization. They separated from us and left us because they had a different doctrine. They did not have the same source. They did not originate from us. They were not sent out by us as missionaries because they did not share the same doctrine which we taught. So what helps distinguish these two senses is is the ek prefix in the verb ex erkamai as well as the context. So it's important for us to get a correct translation here, lest we get lost in the details. A little bit of an expanded translation. John says, they, that is the false teachers, the Antichrists, departed from our midst. But they were not really of us because they were not in agreement with us. For if they had been in agreement with us, and they were not, they would have remained in fellowship with us. That is what he is saying in this verse. The next clause, we've looked at the first clause, they went out from us, that is, they left us, but they were not of us, that is, they really didn't agree with our doctrine. For if they had been of us, now we have an if clause there, which is a conditional clause. That means any kind of an if-then construction is expressing a, a condition. And in English, we only have about one way of expressing a condition, and that's with the word if. But in Greek, there are four different ways to express a condition. This is what is called a second-class condition. And in a second-class condition, you are 
assuming that the condition is not true. Uh, you, uh, sometimes this was used in a debate context, and it was just an assumption. But here it is a statement of reality. For if they had, and it should be understood as if they had been of us and they weren't, it is an assumption of untruth or unreality. If they had been, but they weren't. If they had been of us, but they weren't, they would have continued with us. In other words, if they had been with us, if they had had the same doctrine as us, then they would have continued with us. Now, this is important because in the next phrase, it's going to mention the verb, and the main verb in the apodosis, they that they might uh, continue with us. The word continue in uh, the New American Standard, and I think it's uh, uh, remain and, uh, and continue in the New King James, and I think it's, let me back up here a minute, remain in the New American Standard is our old friend minnow. The word we talked about so much in John 15, and we talked about many times in 1 John, and it always has the connotation of remaining in fellowship. And so what they are saying, what John is saying here, is if they had been in agreement with us doctrinally, but they weren't. If they had been, though, they would have remained in fellowship with us. That's the impact of that verb minnow. It's going to bring in, as part of its nuance, the idea of fellowship. They would have continued in fellowship with us. But because they had... Uh, false doctrine, they could not remain in fellowship with the apostles. Remember, that's what he had said in First John, John 1, 1 through 4. And, of course, they weren't in fellowship with God. So this is the thrust here. And then at the end of the sentence, he says that the reason for this, and this is expressed through a hena clause plus the aorist passive subjunctive of phanerao. Uh, the verb in the Greek is phanerothosin which is the aorist passive subjunctive of phanerao, which means to reveal, to manifest, to appear, to make visible or conspicuous, or to make known. And the reason this happened is in order to, in the course of time, demonstrate that their false doctrine led to false behavior, wrong behavior, and to show that they really weren't ever a part of us. They really never understood the right doctrine. Now, I've seen that happen so many times in my life where I have seen men, I have good friends that I went through Dallas Seminary with who at that time seemed to be really squared away. They, they were able to affirm a, a solid doctrinal statement. They believed on the doctrinal statement of Dallas Seminary. But the question I often have when I look back in time is did they really understand what they said they believed? That's one reason I have a little trouble when you have people come and join a church, do you believe a doctrinal statement? Well, it's real easy to read it and say, yeah, that sounds right. I don't, when, when I make it a point when I, somebody joins the church, I don't want to say, well, do you believe the doctrinal statement? Is this doctrinal statement your doctrinal statement? Do you really understand every clause, every phrase, every verse in that doctrinal statement? And that is your creed. That is what you believe. Because what I've seen happen over and over again is these people We'll, we'll look at it and say, yeah, I believe in dispensations. Well, five years down the road, they throw out dispensations because they never understood it. You know, that was what they had been taught by some pastor, and they grew up, and, they really, and what they said when they said, I believe it, is, well, I don't really have a problem with it. 
And it's different from saying, I don't have a problem with it or I don't have a difficulty with it. And saying, yeah, I really understand what that sentence says about dispensations and I believe it. I've studied the issue and I believe it. And there's a difference between that. And that's one reason a lot of people seem to fall away over the years is because they, they've never really understood the doctrine they seem to affirm at one point. And as time goes by, uh, it reveals the fact that they never understood it and they fall by the wayside. So John says here, they went out from us, that is these false teachers, they went out from us, but they were never really a part of us because they never really agreed with our doctrine of the hypostatic union. That's essentially what was the issue was. For if they had been of us, that is, if they had been in agreement with us, they would have continued in fellowship with us. But they went out from us that it might be made manifest, that it might be revealed, that it might be conspicuously clear what they did believe, that none of them were of us. That is the last phrase. And that last phrase should be translated that not all of them were of us. That is, not all of those in Jerusalem were uh, in agreement. There were certain false teachers operating there. And we know this even from some passages in Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 15, we're told about the, the conflict between the legalists and the grace-oriented apostles. And there's a group of men who came from Judea teaching uh, legalism. Acts 15.1 stated, And some men came down from Judea, that is, from Jerusalem. They were in the Jerusalem church and associated with the apostles, and yet they didn't understand grace. They were caught up in legalism. And they began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they were just teaching pure legalism. And when Paul and Barnabas had a great dissension and debate with them, see, they challenged the false teachers. You don't just let people get by with it for the sake of peace and the sake of tranquility. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined, that is the other apostles, that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go, uh, excuse me, the brethren there refers to the leaders in the church in Antioch. The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Verse 3 Therefore, being sent on their way, see, that would be the verb apostello. We studied apostle the first hour. They were sent. They were sent on a commission to go to uh, Jerusalem. Being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. And it was at that time that they had the uh, what is called the Jerusalem Council and had to hammer out what the relationship of the Gentiles was to the church did they, or to the Mosaic Law. Did they have to be circumcised and abide by the law? And, of course, the solution was that they recognized grace and grace prevailed. But there was always this element of false teachers in the congregation at Jerusalem. So eventually they left. And now they're causing problems in all the churches that had been planted throughout the Roman Empire. And that has always been the case in the church age. Now we come to verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Now that doesn't tell us a whole lot about anointing. So let's skip down and look at verse 27. 
Verse 27 says, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. I want you to notice two things that are associated with the anointing in verse 27. First of all, the anointing from him abides in you. There's our word minnow again. And minnow always relates to something having to do with fellowship with God. Not positional truth, but experiential truth. And the same anointing teaches you. So it has to do with teaching. Now when you look at verse 27... We're going to look at the doctrine of anointing and we're going to say that this seems to indicate that it has to do with the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. But wait a minute. Haven't you always said that anointing only occurs one time? It's not repeated. The filling of the Holy Spirit is repeated. Anointing, if you go back and you look at the Old Testament background, it only occurs once at the initiation of a person's ministry or role or function. A king is anointed once at the beginning of his reign. A prophet is anointed once at the beginning of his ministry. A priest is anointed once at the beginning of his ministry. So if, if anointing relates to to teaching and that would seem, and a fellowship that would seem like it's related to, to the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit in verse 27. But that's a repeated ministry. Only the indwelling ministry takes place first. And I think that's because we're trying to, the reason we get into this confusion is we're trying to cram a Johannine term, John's term anointing, into Paul's terminology. That went right by about half of you. We're trying to take John's terminology. Paul never uses the term anoint. It's only used in these verses. And what happens is we try to take Paul's categories and cram John's categories into Paul's categories. And we can't do that. Anointing here has to do with everything that the believer was given at the point of salvation. So at that point, it's positional reality, but it's potential to... Growth based on fellowship and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it's only when we're, to use Paul's terminology, it's only when we're being filled by the Spirit that that potential is activated so that we are being taught by the Holy Spirit and we are advancing and growing in the spiritual life. So anointing for John refers to everything we're given potentially in relationship to the ministry of the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. But it is on, that, that potential is only activated when we're in fellowship, when, when we're in right relationship with the Holy Spirit and studying His Word. So with that, that's just an overview. And uh, John is reminding them in verse 20, but you have an anointing. That is, this is something you have in the present tense. You have an anointing from the Holy One. It's not the Holy Spirit here. It just says from the Holy. And you know... All things. See, in the um, uh, New King James Version translates it, you know all things. And in the New American Standard, it translates it, and you all know. It should be translated as the New King James translates it, you know all things. Now, why is it that he can say that you know all things? Well, remember what Jesus promised the disciples in John fourteen twenty six. He said, but the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. 
In John 16, 13, Jesus said, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So what we see here is that you know all things. It's not talking about the fact that they, they know everything or that they're omniscient. No one knows everything. No creature knows everything or is omniscient. Uh, Paul even, this would be a contradiction of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 8, that now we know partially. So what is he talking about here? And that is that the anointing gives us the potential for understanding uh, everything in Scripture. Now, we don't have time to get into all of that and how that works together this morning. We will come back and start unpacking the doctrine of the anointing of the Holy Spirit next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning to study your word and to begin to get into this important doctrine related to everything that the Holy Spirit has supplied and provided for us at the instant of salvation. We thank you that you provided everything for us in salvation, that there's nothing that we need, nothing more that we need, nothing that we can add to it, but that you did everything for us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would make that both sure and certain at this, at this time. Father, we pray that you would, they would understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do to have eternal life is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of changing your life, joining a church, or any other human factor. It's just a matter of putting your faith alone in Christ alone. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.